BestBookBits.com presents The World is Flat, a brief history of the 21st century by Thomas L. Friedman. When scholars write the history of the world 20 years from now and they come to the chapter Y2K to March 204, what will they say was the most critical development? The attacks of the World Trade Center on 9-11 and the Iraq War, or the convergence of technology and events that allowed India China and so many other countries to become part of the global supply chain for services and manufacturing, creating an explosion of wealth in the middle classes of the world's two biggest nations, giving them a huge new stake in the success of globalization. And with this flattening of the globe, which requires us to run faster in order to stay in place, has the world gotten too small and too fast for human beings and their political systems to adjust in a stable manner? The written summary can be found on our website, bestbookbits.com. So without further ado, I bring you the book summary of The World is Flat. In The World is Flat, Friedman takes a fresh look at the interconnectedness of the modern world and explores the implications of the changes brought on by huge improvements in communications technologies. These technologies, he argues, have leveled the economic playing field around the world, making it flat. He also points to a slew of other causes, from the fall of the Berlin Wall to the rise of the internet, as sources of this flatness. Developments that are making it easier with every passing day for people all over the world to work together or compete against each other. Friedman's 1999 bestseller, The Lexus and the Olive Tree, provided much of the intellectual foundation for his latest book. The first big book on globalization that anybody actually read. As Friedman describes it, helped make him a fixture on the international conference circuits. It also made Friedman a lighting rod for some political activists, including members of the anti-globalization movement. After 9-11, Friedman took a temporary hiatus from writing about issues of globalization. He spent the next three years traveling the Arab world, trying to get at the roots of the attack on the United States, and his columns on the aftermath of 9-11 earned him a Pulitzer Prize. But Friedman soon realized that while he was writing about terrorism, he was missing on an even bigger story. Globalization had gone into overdrive. So in the late 2004, Friedman offered up The World is Flat to share his current thinking on the subject. To help put the finishing touches on his book, Friedman enlisted some impressive editorial assistants. Bill Gates spent a day with him to critique the theory. Friedman also presented sections of the book to the strategic planning unit at IBM and to Michael Dell. The rare insights he gained from these conversations are peppered throughout the book. Throughout all the interviews and anecdotes, Friedman's unique brand of sober optimism shines through. He clearly wants to tell us how exciting this new, flatter world will be, but he also wants us to understand that we're going to be trampled if we don't keep up with it and take ownership of this great challenge. So without further ado, let's jump into Friedman's explanation of how the flattening of the world happened at the dawn of the 21st century, what it means to countries, companies, and individuals, and hear Friedman's advice on how governments and societies can and must adapt. It's a flat world after all. The first chapter on Friedman's book is set in Bangalore, birthplace of India's high-tech economy. There we learn about the highly educated workers who are thriving on outsourcing from American businesses, not just call center operators, but accountants who know all your local tax regulations, executive assistants who will research and prepare your next PowerPoint presentation, software designers, and aircraft engineers. 
it's no coincidence that the opening chapter is set in India. It was in India that Friedman experienced his aha moment. That is to say, Friedman's discovery of the world's flatness first came to him a few years ago when he was interviewing a gentleman named Nananan Nilkani, the CEO of one of India's largest high-tech companies. The Indian entrepreneur remarked to Friedman, Tom, the playing field is being leveled. And Friedman says that these words hit him with the force of a revelation. What Nandan is saying, Friedman thought to himself afterwards, is that the playing field is being flattened, flattened, flattened. My God, he's telling us the world is flat. And so Tom Frieden wrote a book that explores how the world got flattened and then offers a prescription for what we in North America should do about it. Welcome to Globalization 3.0. Although at times it may seem like the world got flat almost overnight, that's not exactly the case. According to Friedman, globalization has so far gone through three distinct phases, which each phase of globalization, the world becomes just a tiny bit flatter. But today, with the explosion of new technologies, the flattening process is in overdrive. Friedman explains that the first phase of globalization took place from 1492 to the 1800, during which European countries opened up trade with each other and with the new world. The first phase was largely driven by military expansion and success dependent on the amount of raw manpower and horsepower countries could employ. The second phase was from 1800 to 2000, where multinational corporations drove global integration. The dominant technologies were railways and autos, as mentioned earlier, the Lexus and the olive tree, focused on the world at the tail end of the era. In the current phase, which Friedman terms globalization 3.0, individuals as opposed to countries or multinational corporations are now the key driving force. And the defining technologies of our era is a worldwide network of fiber optic cable capable of transmitting reams of electronic data from one end of the globe to the other in seconds. In a rare interview, Mark Andreessen, the creator of the world's first commercial internet browser, spoke about the virtues of globalization 3.0. Today, the most profound thing to me is that the fact that a person in Romania or Bangalore or Vietnam has all the tools they need to apply knowledge however they want, said Andreessen. So as the key fields like medicine and bioscience are becoming more computational and less about doing work in actual labs, as the genomic data becomes easily available on the internet, at some point you'll be able to design new vaccines on your laptop. Anderson is touching on one of the most exciting parts of globalization 3.0, the flattening of the world in general. The fact that we are now connecting all the knowledge pools in the world together. We are on the cusp of an incredible new era of innovation, an era that will be driven from the west and east and from the north and the south. Bill Gates explains the meaning of this transformation best. 30 years ago, he told Friedman, if you had to choose between being born a genius in Mumbai or Shanghai or the average person in Poughkeepsie, you would likely have chosen Poughkeepsie because your chances of living a prosperous and fulfilled life were much greater there. Today, Gates says, I would much rather be a bright A student born in China than an average student born in Poughkeepsie. The barriers of entry have almost disappeared. The 10 flatteners, the exponential flattening of the world we're seeing today in globalization 3.0 is a direct result of 10 events and forces that all converged right around the year 2000. Number one, 
The first event was November 9, 1989, the day the Berlin Wall came down. Friedman sees this as a critically important date because the first time in modern history, it enables people to begin thinking of the world as a single space. Number two, the second key date was August 9, 1995, the day Netscape, the first commercial internet browser, went public. This brought the internet alive by giving us a badly needed tool to display images and data stored on websites. Moreover, says Friedman, the Netscape IPO also triggered the dot-com boom, which led to the dot-com bust, which triggered a massive overinvestment of billions of dollars in fiber optic telecommunications cables. The overinvestment by companies like Global Crossing resulted in a commercially reckless lane of global undersea fiber optic network, which in turn drove down the cost of transmitting data overseas to practically zero, which in turn accidentally made the Boston and Beijing next-door neighbors almost overnight. Suddenly, more people could connect with more other people from more different places than ever before. The first time this became apparent was when thousands of Indian engineers were enlisted to fix the Y2K computer bugs for companies from all over the world. The fact that the Y2K work could be outsourced to Indians was made possible by the first two flatteners described above, along with the third, which Friedman calls workflow. Number three, workflow, the third great flattener, is another word for all the software applications that help connect all the computers and fiber optic cable. To put it another way, if the other trends basically connected people to people, what the workflow revolution did was connect applications to applications so that machines all over the world could work together in manipulating and shaping words, data, and images like never before. Those breakthroughs in people-to-people and application-to-application connectivity produced in short order. Six more flatteners. Six new ways in which individuals and companies could collaborate on work and share knowledge. Number four, the fourth flattener was outsourcing. In this era, all kinds of work could be digitalized and shifted to any place in the world where it could be done faster and cheaper. The fifth was offshoring. Simply put, that's when businesses send a whole factory overseas. This continues to be a cause of great consternation in the United States. And six, the sixth was open sourcing. Open sourcing occurs when high-minded software engineers collaborate together online and create new value for free. Seven, the seventh was insourcing. Insourcing happens when you let a well-run company like FedEx or UPS come inside your company and take over your whole logistics operation. Everything from filing your orders online to delivering your manufactured goods to repairing them for customers when they break. Eight, the eighth flattener was supply chaining. This is when Walmart's speciality image creating a global supply chain that's so effective that if you sell a pair of shoes in Arkansas, another pair is immediately made in China. That's what Walmart did. And number nine, the ninth flattener was a new form of collaboration that Friedman calls informing. These are the search engines like Google, Yahoo, and MSN Search, we now allow anyone to find and access virtually unlimited piles of data, data all by themselves. Number 10, the 10th and final flattener is what Friedman calls the steroids, which include voice over internet and wireless internet access. Basically, what wireless does is it turbocharges all the new forms of collaboration, so you can now do any one of them from anywhere with an ever-expanding array of tiny handheld devices. 
So in summary, Friedman's first three flatteners created a new platform for collaboration, and the next six are the new forms of collaboration that flatten the world even more. And the world became flat when all 10 of these trends converged around the year 2000. This created a global, web-enabled playing field that allowed for multiple forms of collaboration in real time without regard to geography, distance, or language. While some of these factors may seem less decisive than others, Friedman nevertheless reminds us how different things were just a few years ago. That alone is eye-opening. How to compete in a flat world. It's clear that the flattening of the world is creating profound challenges as well as opportunities for those of us in North America. It's a watershed moment in our history. If this moment has any parallel in modern history, writes Friedman, it is the height of the Cold War around 1957, when the Soviet Union leapt ahead of America in the space race by putting up the Sputnik satellite. Of course, the main challenge at that time came from those who wanted to put up fences and walls. The main challenge we face today comes from the fact that all the walls are being taken down and many other people can now compete with us much more directly. The main threat we faced at the time was from those practicing extreme communism, namely Russia and China. The main threat today is from those practicing extreme capitalism, namely China and India. In Friedman's view, meeting the challenge of a flat world requires just as energetic and focused a response as did meeting the challenge of communism a generation ago. In other words, it requires political leaders who can summon the nation to work harder, get smarter, attract more young people to science and engineering, and build the broadband infrastructure, portable pensions, and healthcare that will enable every citizen become more employable in any age which no one can guarantee lifetime employment. Admittedly, the challenges of competing in a flat world are markedly different than those formerly presented by the threat of communism. For starters, today's challenges don't exactly involve nuclear missiles aimed at our cities. It is more of a quiet crisis this time around. But in Friedman's estimation, that doesn't make it any less real or less pressing. As he makes the rounds on the American talk show circuit and in other forums, Friedman has made it his personal mission to draw the nation's attention to this threat. Of course, in order to deal effectively with the quiet crisis, we must first understand its roots. Friedman believes that the crisis is a product of three gaps currently plaguing North American society. The first is an ambition gap. Compared with the young, energetic Indians and the Chinese, too many people in the West have simply gotten lazy. Gotten lazy. Or as David Rothkamp, a former official in the Clinton Commerce Department, explained to Friedman, the real entitlement we need to get rid of is a sense of entitlement. Second, Friedman argues we have a serious numbers gap. We are not producing enough engineers and scientists. The United States and Canada used to make up for that by importing them from India and China. But in a flat world where people can now stay at home and compete with us, and also in our post-9-11 world, with all its security concerns, we can no longer rely on immigration to cover the gap. And finally, Friedman argues we are experiencing an education gap. There's a dirty little secret that no CEO wants to tell you, he says. Companies are not just outsourcing to China and India to save on salaries and benefits. They are doing it because they can often get better skilled and more productive people than their North American workers. Friedman's perspective is obvious. We need to get our kids back to basics immediately. It's time to turn off the TV and the Game Boys and focus on schoolwork and entrepreneurship. The tidal wave is coming straight for us, and there's no way to stop it.
When Friedman was growing up, his parents used to say to him, Tom, finish your dinner. People in China are starving. Today, Friedman is telling us his daughters, girls, finish your math homework. People in China and India are starving for your jobs. Conclusion, over the past 15 years, Tom Friedman's writing has influenced presidents, policymakers, and captains of industries all around the world. His newspaper columns reach millions each day, and he has firmly established himself as a leading cultural pundit. Admittedly, the material Tom Friedman likes to work with can be a bit dense at times. Globalization is heavy-duty subject matter, and it can be dreary stuff if you're not careful. But Friedman has clearly found a way to make it fun. Here are two final examples. Did you know that when you order a burger at a drive through McDonald's on Interstate 55 in Missouri, the person taking your order is at a call center 900 miles away in Colorado? Or that when you call JetBlue for a reservation, you may be talking to a housewife in Utah doing the job from her living room part-time. By using real-life examples like these to illustrate complex global concepts and trends, Friedman is able to get his message across in a way that appeals to most readers. Whether he's in Boston, Bangalore, or Beijing, Friedman asks brilliant questions of everyone he encounters. The lesson he distills from either responses brings a new perspective to the ways in which everyone, from CEOs to religious radicals to entrepreneurs and garden-variety consumers, are all creating ripples in their own particular ways. Regardless of what your political beliefs may be or where you may think you fit in the overall equation, Friedman shows us that we all have an undeniable stake in globalization. There's simply no escaping it. The world is getting flatter every day. And that's a wrap on The World is Flat. Subscribe to our channel and take a look at the hundreds of book summaries uploaded previously. To find hundreds of written summaries, check out our website, bestbookbits.com. And for hundreds of audio podcast summaries, find us on mixcloud.com forward slash bestbookbits. If you like reading and want to get involved in sharing knowledge and spreading great book summaries, connect with myself by emailing us at info at bestbookbits.com. Thanks for watching and listening, and I hope you got something from The World is Flat. Take care. Have a great day.